If you'll join me again in Ephesians chapter 2, the very last verses of that chapter will be what we look at this morning, and Lord willing, next week we'll move on to the third chapter. But we have some ground to cover this morning before we close out this chapter, and I don't want you to lose sight of, at the conclusion of our service, we're going to observe the supper together. It's never my intent for the, for the Lord's Supper to be tagged on to the end of a service. And so, as we go through these verses and a few of the things I'll say this morning, I hope and pray that this sermon would lead us to observing the Supper in a way that would honor and glorify the Lord. I'm going to preach this sermon in reverse. <laughs> What I mean by that, what I have written as the conclusion, I'm going to begin with. So hopefully I won't get lost in this, and I won't get you lost in it either. But I was thinking, as we read this morning, Acts 17, if you go back to the beginning of that chapter, back up into the first few verses, it was said there of Paul and Silas, and really it was said of the apostles of Christ in general, that they had turned the world upside down. Do you remember that? They had caused a stir. They were looking for Paul and Silas, couldn't find them, so they found Jason. They drug him out into the street in the accusation that they level against him because of his affiliation with Paul and Silas is that those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. I thought about that, that word, turned upside down. And so I looked at it just a bit, and it literally means to stir up, to excite, or to unsettle. And so the accusation there against Paul and Silas and all of those really apostles who had preached the gospel is that they had stirred up, excited, and unsettled the world. They had turned it on its head. One of the words that's used to comprise this, this verb that is translated turned upside down has the connotation to it of being driven out of a home, to be placed out of a home. The implication there is to be so unsettled, so disturbed, that you've left that which was once comfortable to you in pursuit of something else. So I want you to think about that with me as we consider the conclusion of this second chapter where Paul details all the benefits that have now come to the Gentiles based upon what Christ has done for them. And the illustration that I want to use as we begin, and hopefully this will stick in your mind as it is, as it is stuck in mind, Christ has come and he's preached the gospel of peace to you. That's what he says in the 17th verse, if you back up into the verses we covered last week. And he came, and he preached peace to you. How did he do that? By his Spirit, through the ministry of the Word. Christ has come and preached peace to you. What's the result of that? He turned your world upside down. 
He drove you out of that home because he unsettled you, he excited you, and he stirred you up. That home that you were once comfortable in, and let me remind you what that home was. According to the first three verses of this second chapter, that home was your own sin. You were dead in it. You were completely comfortable there. You were walking according to the course of the world. You were held captive by the prince of the power of the air. But now Christ has come and in grace and mercy has turned your world upside down, driven you out of that home and unto himself. Would you have ever left the comfort of that home on your own? Would you have ever turned your back on your sin? And your love for it? If he hadn't come and preached peace to you? And unsettled you? I wonder if any of you are unsettled here this morning. You're still in that house of, let me just read the verses dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, conducting yourselves in the lust of your flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I wonder if the preaching of the gospel that you have sat under, not just here, but in other places, has unsettled you to the point that perhaps this morning the Spirit of God would so come to you and unsettle you and drive you out of that place and drive you to Christ. Give you a new home. Turn your world completely upside down. Do for you what you would have never done for yourself. That's what He's done for me. And many of you would say that's exactly what He's done for you. You're forever different. You're forever changed. You're no longer who you once were. You no longer have an appetite for the very things that you lived for. That very thing that defined who you were prior to your salvation, that thing that that was the first thought on your mind when you woke up, that which your life revolved around now after Christ has come and preached peace to you, you no longer even have an appetite for that. You're completely different. That's what verse 19 says in the beginning. Let me read these few verses. Paul says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Would you pray with me? Father, we come and we ask you to take these verses and apply them to our hearts by your Spirit, that we would glory in our salvation, that we would glory in our inclusion. We would glory in the fact that we, as we sit here this morning, 
by your Spirit, you are building us into and fitting us together into a holy temple in the Lord, the very dwelling place of our God. We thank you for these truths in Christ's name. Amen. The thing that I want to key in on here this, at the beginning is just the first phrase of chapter 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer. Realizing that Paul is writing to Gentiles who have been included now with the people of God, the old covenant people of God, I want to take that, we're going to come back to this, I'm not setting it aside for long, but we're coming back here. I want you to make this as personally applicable to your own situation in life as you can. My prayer is that the Spirit of God would even now come and sit alongside you and help you make this application. You are no longer who you once were. You're different. The Bible presents conversion to us, salvation, as a total makeover. To the point now that the Scripture would tell us if we're in Christ, we're new creatures. The old is gone. It's passed away. We have new appetites. We have new desires. To sum it up, we have forever been changed. Is that a proper description of who you are? If you deal honestly with you, that's part of the call to a Christian as we approach the communion table of the Lord is to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Would you be so bold this morning as to even where you sit, pray and ask the Spirit of God to come and examine you and to help you examine you. You've heard, no doubt, of Jonathan Edwards. You could read volumes, truckloads of things, not only that he wrote, but things that were written about him. I'm reading a short a book that contains several short biographies in it, though I've read much more full biographies of his life. He's included in this small book, and I was reminded of some of the events of his life and some of the great suffering that he endured, and I want to share that with you this morning. You remember that he was one of the preachers that spurred or that the Lord used to spur the Great Awakening. The years would have been 1734 and 1735. It was in those years that he preached that sermon we referred to last week, The Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. But if you fast forward, after that awakening had somewhat subsided, though he was seen and even at a point in life exalted as one of the primary tools of that awakening, he came under severe persecution by his own congregation. So much so that by the year 1750, 15 years after Jonathan Edwards was used of God to bring revival and awakening, 15 years later, his church dismissed him from the pastorate 
Do you remember why? What was the reason? Well, some think that he was too spirit-filled. Thought that he spoke and, and wrote and taught too much about the work of the Spirit. And that he was too mysterious. But that wasn't the reason why the church dismissed him. A little more history, this church in Northampton, he became pastor of after his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was the pastor. It was the largest church in Northampton. It had the greatest influence on the community. And his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, was really a prominent figure. But he had established a practice in the church that any and all were welcome to the communion table. Jonathan Edwards, after the Great Awakening, after studying his Bible, fell under such great conviction that shouldn't be so. The communion table, this ordinance is for believers and for believers only. And so he began to preach and to teach and uphold the position that if you were not in Christ, and not only professing that you were in Christ, if you were not in Christ and giving good evidence of being in Christ, then you were not, not, no longer welcome at the table. Not long after that, Jonathan Edwards was no longer the pastor of Northampton Church. That's when he went to the Indians and ministered among the Indians. You can, his, his biography is fascinating. I encourage you to get it and read it, especially the one written by Ian Murray. It'll take you a while to chew through it, but you'll profit, I, I can almost guarantee you. If you fast forward just a few more years from his life, Jonathan Edwards in 1758 dies as a young man as a result of contracting smallpox through a vaccine. His life, we think, is cut short. But yet how much did he accomplish in those days of his life being used of God? And if you like to read men like John Piper... John Piper, by his own admission, would tell you Jonathan Edwards is the supreme influence in his life outside of Christ and the Scriptures. And there are many contemporaries who would tell you that Jonathan Edwards has so shaped and formed them. I want to give you two quotes, and I'm going to tie this, Lord willing, back to our verses this morning. I want to give you two quotes that I read this week that led to his being dismissed, this great preacher used of God, being dismissed by his own congregation for saying things like this. This is a direct quote from him. He said, There are many that think themselves to be born again, that have never experienced any change of nature at all, that haven't had one new principle added, nor one sinful disposition mortified, that never saw one glimpse of divine light, never saw the least of God's or Christ's glory. They think themselves now renewed in the whole man, but yet they have never as much as had one finger renewed, if I might use that expression. And then to go on to his other quote here, which is 
a summary of what he has just said. He says, true grace, true grace reaches to the very bottom of the heart. Counterfeit grace never dispossesses sin of the dominion of the soul, nor does it destroy the reigning power that is there. What is he saying by those two quotes? Basically, he's saying exactly what Paul says here in a different context. Now, therefore, after Christ has come and preached peace to you who were once far off, now you are no longer what you were. You're a new man. You're a new creation. You're different. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Isn't it interesting and sad to think that a congregation that would have said they were holding to the Scriptures would have dismissed one of the greatest minds, one of the greatest preachers, based upon this expectation that only true believers are welcome at the table. You can read that in history. It's fact. It's reality. It shows the deceitfulness of sin. It shows how quickly a people forget of the great working of God. Fifteen years is all it took to go from great awakening to firing their pastor over upholding a biblical conviction. Now I want you to go back to these verses with me. And I want to look at three things. The beginnings of grace, the benefits of grace, and the building of grace. Grace in its beginning. I've already hinted to it, but if you see there in verse 19, now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Now remember in this context, Paul is writing to Gentiles that have now been converted. Gentiles that have now been not only converted, but grafted in to the people of God. Last week I, I referenced, and if you went to the back of your, your Bible and looked at the maps, and you saw the temple in Paul's day, and you saw those outer courts, the outer court being the court of the Gentiles. That's the court with the signs that said to the Gentiles, do not trespass any further toward the inner sanctuary or you, or you will be killed. It's interesting, as you look at that map in your Bible and you see those outer courts that shrink from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the women to the court of the Jewish men and then finally into the inner sanctuary, and you have that in your mind, and then you come to Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. What Paul is doing here, in my mind at least, is he's beginning in that outer court. And he's breaking down barriers of each one of those courts until he brings the Gentiles by doctrine through understanding from that outer court into the family of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, to Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He's taking them from the outskirts and he's bringing them by doctrine all the way into the holy of holies. Everything that would distinguish them from the Jews is gone. 
There is one building by the time we reach the end of chapter 2. There is one holy temple by the time we reach the end of chapter 2. This is the same Paul that said in Acts chapter 17 that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. The church comprised of Jew and Gentile, according to Paul here and according to Paul in Romans, is the temple of the new covenant. Isn't that the same thing Peter would say in in 1 Peter chapter 2? Isn't that the the reasoning behind Paul when he says in, in the Corinthian letters that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? There is both a personal and then a corporate application of what Paul would say there. But let's look here at the beginnings of grace. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. If you were to go back up into verses 11 and 13, 11, 12, and 13, everything that Paul said that they once were not, now he tells them they are. You remember those statements. You were once without Christ. Now he's saying you have Christ. He was saying you once were without hope and without God in the world. Now he says you have both God and hope in the world. You once were far off. Now you've been brought near. And so the culmination of this in verse 19 is you are no longer strangers and foreigners. Some of your Bibles say aliens. You're no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You're something altogether different. And the personal application of this to you and I is we are no longer what we once were either. We're now the exact opposite. Once dead in sin, now alive in Christ. Once walking according to the course of this world, now walking in step with the Spirit. Once walking according to the prince of the power of the air, now we are walking according to the Son of God, who in this context, as we are reminded, is the very prince of peace himself. We are no longer held captive by the Spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience, but we are indwelt by the Spirit of God that is who is Himself bearing witness that we are sons of God. Everything that once defined us has been turned upside down. Everything that we were once excluded from, we have now been included into. This is the beginning of grace, but what are the benefits that extend from it? Well, we've looked at the first. No longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Back to the imagery of the temple. Do you see how things are shrinking? No longer in the outer courts as strangers and foreigners, but now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Getting closer and closer to the very place where God dwells. But notice what he says before we get to that point. Notice the comforting aspect of this. 
It's one thing to be told you're no longer a stranger and a foreigner. It's something altogether different to be told now you're a member of the household. That's a whole new level of understanding, isn't it? No longer are you an alien, now you're a son. No longer are you on the outskirts, you've been brought near. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Let me deal with something here before we move on. You'll see it again in chapter 3 and verse 5. If you would look over, Paul there speaks of apostles and prophets again. And if you go over to the 11th verse of chapter 4, again, he writes of apostles and prophets, and it's always in that order. It's never prophets, then apostles. And why do I make that point? I think what Paul is getting across here, he is speaking of the prophets of the new covenant. He's not referring to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and even any of the Old Testament prophets. He's speaking of those New Testament prophets, some of which are named in the New Testament itself. Basically what he is saying here is that you have been built upon the foundation of the apostles' doctrine. You remember in Acts chapter 2, that was one of the things that the church was continually giving itself to, was the apostles' doctrine. Notice this is the foundation upon which all of what, all of what Paul writes about here is, is based upon. And then he says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So you get that imagery in your mind, right? Right? There is a foundation, and while some see this, the translation of the word cornerstone better applying to a capstone, I'm, I'm not one that sees that. I like the language of the cornerstone of the foundation upon which everything is laid. So we have the apostles' doctrine, which is here summarized as both the apostles and prophets of the New Testament, and then the very cornerstone of that being Jesus Christ himself. That's the foundation upon which you have been built. That's why we sang this morning that old hymn, a lengthy old hymn, six verses, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. We could have sang another old hymn, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in his excellent word. The point to be made here is that we, now as believers in Jesus Christ, our feet are resting upon the rock of Jesus Christ. He will hold you fast. When you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. When it seems as though the tempter would prevail, Christ will hold you fast. Why? Because you have been built upon him. Nothing shakes him. Nothing unsettles him. Nothing turns his world upside down. 
Isn't that a, a great, comforting, not just thought, but reality? We have no reason now to fear. We have no reason now to be overcome with doubt. We're built upon the foundation stone of Jesus Christ. He is the one that has shed His blood. He is the one that has given His broken body. Can I remind you, the verses that lead down to this speak of being brought near by what? Do you remember? By the blood of Jesus Christ. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. How? Paul said He has abolished it in His flesh. And He has come now and preached peace to us having put to death the enmity. How did he put to death the enmity between you and God? Well, Paul says, through the cross. Being built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ has cost him. It has cost him going to the cross, shedding his blood there, and enduring it all. And now we cannot just think of the beginnings of grace, but now we think of the great benefits of grace. We've been brought into His family. We've been brought close, and we are near to Him. Let me give you a a somewhat lengthy quote by Charles Spurgeon commenting on these verses here. And he really cuts to the heart of what Paul is, these two that Paul is by doctrine through, through Christ's doctrine bringing together. Spurgeon says, in any part of the Christian church, all national distinctions are swept away. And isn't that what Paul would write in another place? There's no longer Jew, no longer Gentile. We are no more foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and saints of the household of God. These are still Spurgeon's words. He says, God has leveled down the Jews and made them stand in the same class as Gentiles. He has leveled up the outcast and despised the Gentiles and has admitted us to all the privileges of his ancient covenant, making us now to be heirs with Abraham because we too possess like precious faith of the father of the faithful himself. He goes on to say, oh, what a blessing it is that all racial, national, and ceremonial distinctions have gone forever and that Christ is all and in all to to all who believe in Him. You've heard it said like this, every man, regardless of his, his language, the color of his skin, whatever it may be, Every man is humbled and brought low and together at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. There are no class distinctions there. There there is no racial tension there. Christ has done away with all of that. He's removed it all. But then we get to the last part of this. Not only are we 
no longer strangers and foreigners, but now fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Notice verse 21, in whom the whole building, the whole building now comprised of both Jew and Gentile, is being fitted together. This has to be a reference of Paul here to the work of a stonemason. Taking those stones and chiseling them and cutting part away and fitting them together where in the end they have this great not only... What I'm trying to say is they fit together in such a great way that they can't be easily torn apart. That's the imagery that Paul is getting across here to us as the church being built together, being fitted, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So there's really two, image, two images here that Paul has in mind. There is a building that's being built which is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And let me give you these words. I don't know who these are original to, but it was helpful to me to think of it in this way. Viewing, viewed as a building, the church is still under construction. This local church is under construction. The Lord is fitting us together just as He will. That's what Paul would write to the Corinthians. In the wisdom of God, He has brought you and you and you together to form this local assembly. He has chiseled us each one and fitted us together. We are very much and will continue to be under construction until the Lord returns. But then viewed as the temple, because that's the second image that Paul employs here. Viewed as the temple, however, we are already an inhabited dwelling. See the difference in the two? They go together quite nicely. As a church, we're under construction, but even under construction, we are inhabited by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, He is the head of His church. He is building us together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what is true of the Gentile here in the context of Ephesians chapter 2 is true of all of us, right? On two counts. Number one, we're Gentiles. But number two, if we look at it and we compare the beginning of the second chapter with the end, that's the comparison that I want to close with. What has happened to get those in the beginning of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 2? Are you tracking with me? In the beginning of chapter 2, dead in sin. At the end of chapter 2, the very dwelling place of God in the Spirit. 
That's a pretty great transformation, is it not? To get us from one to the other. What's happened? Well, it's bound up in those words we've already referred to. Christ has come in the flesh to the cross to shed his blood, to endure it all. And he has come and preached peace to you. And you heard his voice. And you came to him. And in coming to Christ, he snatched you. That's a word that we love, right? Nothing will snatch us out of the Father's hand, but let's use it in a different way. Christ snatched you out of the first three verses of Ephesians 2 and very gently, lovingly placed you down into these verses that conclude the second chapter. So another reason why we sing this morning how deep the Father's love for us. That he would do all of this for sinners. Has he done it for you? Can you rightly come to this table and commune with the Lord? It's my conviction, as I know it is all of yours as well, that this table is for believers only. For those that find themselves in the end of the second chapter and only find themselves there because of the grace and mercy of God and Christ. So here in just a few moments, when we observe this ordinance together, let's observe it in unity of faith, unity of doctrine, and give him all the glory for what he's done. Praise his holy name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great mercy and grace you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We are thankful for the shedding of his blood and the rending of his body. We're thankful that he endured the cross, despising its shame. And that he is now seated at your right hand. But we're thankful for all of the benefits of being your people. No longer excluded. No longer at enmity with you. No longer striving against you. No longer trying to work peace for ourselves. Thank you for including us into your family. Thank you for adopting us into your family as your own sons and daughters. Thank you for coming to us when we were lost in sin. Thank you for changing the course of our lives. 
Thank You for making us new. New creatures in Christ. Thank You for giving us a distaste for those very things which we once enjoyed and for giving a taste of glory. Just a a glimpse of that which is to come more fully. Thank You for building us together into this local expression of your church. We give you all the praise and glory for all of these things, and we recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as the head of this church. We're thankful that we can confess that we have been built upon the foundation of the Apostles' Doctrine with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And Father, we conclude this prayer by appealing to your mercy that you would bring more that you would bring more into the household of faith that you would adopt more children that you would get more out of the first chapter out of the first of the second chapter and translate them over into the end of that chapter Father, we can't do that work. Try as we might. Help us to be good and faithful servants in preaching the gospel to the lost world around us, knowing all the while that all is vain. All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One intervenes. So, Father, help us now as we observe communion together to benefit spiritually to profit. Father, we pray and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.